0: History of Persia is a Hopful Media Podcast production. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia, episode 88, Peace at Last. Last time, we covered the escalating Corinthian War, born out of a seemingly minor border dispute between the allies of Sparta and Thebes, converging with the Spartan invasion of Anatolia in 495. Artaxerxes II opted to push the war out of his own territory and into Greece, agreeing to send support to the likes of Thebes, Athens, Corinth, and Argos in their war against Spartan hegemony. To support this effort, Satrap Pharnabazus of Phrygia went west with the Persian fleet, going farther than any Persian commander had ever been to raid the Peloponnese and conquer the island of Kithira. Changing situations in the West saw several satraps pass through Lydia. Pharnabazus himself was elevated to a higher position, besieging Egypt, married to Artaxerxes' daughter, and replaced by his son Ariobarzanes. But soon. King Evagoras of Cypriot Salome became a thorn in the Persian side, rebelling against Artaxerxes, but receiving support from a resurgent Athens rather than Sparta. Likewise, Pharaoh Hakor of Egypt sent money to aid Sparta and Athens and Evagoras. The Thracians were getting involved on the Athenian side, too. The eastern Mediterranean was a complex web of diplomacy and warfare by the end of the decade. 390 BCE brought a new set of Spartan and Athenian admirals into the Aegean, while their respective allies continued to duke it out back in northwestern Greece and the Peloponnese. It also brought Tirabazis back to Sardis as satrap of Lydia. Satrap Struthus was removed because the situation regarding Athens had changed. Artaxerxes still wanted to break Spartan influence, but Athenian successes at sea, with Persian ships no less, and an Athenian victory in his own territory were not good signs. On top of that, there was the developing quagmire on Cyprus to consider. Persia's old enemy-turned-ally in Athens was assisting Persia's old friend-turned-enemy, Evagoras, who was trying to secede with the most valuable naval base in the Mediterranean. Tirabazes' predisposition against Athens would be helpful now. With Tirabazes back in power, the Spartans actually sent a second active fleet commanded by Antalcidas, the diplomat, in 389, thinking that his existing relationship with the satrap would be useful. Xenophon describes a confounding sequence of Spartan and Athenian admirals sailing back and forth and trading off for different sub-theaters on both the Greek and Persian coastlines. I had to read the paragraph five times before I felt like I was starting to follow the sequence of events. It's basically just a list of names, cities, and islands that I won't bother you with. Very little changed, so I'll just cover the bit that affected our territory. One Spartan fleet kept up the Siege of Rhodes, while another raided up and down the Ionian coast before sailing back to Greece and scoring a victory against the Athenians. At this point, most of the naval fighting centered on the island of Aegina in the Saronic Gulf. The island was a Spartan ally in a position that could threaten both Corinth and Athens, so it was hotly contested. The Athenian ships heading to Cyprus to support Evagoras actually diverted to Aegina instead, defeating the same Spartan fleet that had been in Ionia just a few months earlier. Cyprus ground to a stalemate. Hecatomnus and Autophradates weren't making any progress but Evagoras couldn't force them off the island or win a significant naval battle and force a retreat at sea. This even prompted a rumor after the war that Hecatomnus was secretly supporting Evagoras the whole time, giving the rebel Cypriot money, and deliberately losing battles. This is stated as fact by Isocrates, a contemporary, and Diodorus, writing a few centuries later. But it is... unlikely, to say the least. If Hecatomnus had wanted Evagoras to succeed, it was in his power to arrange catastrophic losses on the Persian side. But he didn't. He also had nothing to gain from prolonging the conflict. Every passing day without a decisive change made him look ineffective and it's not like the loss of Cyprus would suddenly have made it possible for Caria to secede from the Persian Empire. They were surrounded on two sides by Lydia, and Cilicia was on the third. The prolonged war on Cyprus makes more sense if you look at it in the overall picture of the Mediterranean, especially if you follow the theory that Caria was not an independent satrapy yet. Resources in the Western Empire were stretched thin. Egypt was now a hostile force to the southwest with a well-known history of invading the Levant. Financial assistance was shuffled out of Persian coffers to the Greek allies to the northwest. And even though the Spartans weren't having much success in taking Ionian territory, their constant raids necessitated reconstruction, and relief for the Loyalists who were attacked. Keeping defensive armies on duty for a decade was also just a drain, and the Cypriot War required the reconstruction of even more new ships just years after they were sent to fight the Corinthian War. Cyprus was just taking a back seat for the time being. The situation dragged on like this with minimal territorial change. One island in the anti-Spartan alliance gave in after being attacked by Agesilus, but it was just one island. Elsewhere, the alliance in Greece was starting to gain the upper hand. Thanks to an influx of money and ships from Persia, the Athenian fleet had surpassed what the Spartans could maintain, repair, and rebuild after its many defeats. Remember, the Spartan fleet was only ever a gift from Darius II, difficult for the Spartans to maintain without the tribute they had grown accustomed to as the undisputed hegemon of Greece. In 388, they were reinforced by new arrivals from Syracuse. During the Peloponnesian War, the old Spartan colony in Sicily had provided key reinforcements against Athens, but up to this point, they had been busy with their own wars against Carthage. Those had recently ended. Seeking to break the stalemate, Sparta sent Antalcidas back to Sardis to negotiate with Tirabazis. The satrap heard him out, but orders were orders. He was not authorized to negotiate with Sparta. However, Antalcidas was making good points and the Athenian campaigning in and around Anatolia and Cyprus was better evidence of future Athenian threats than But they're building the walls you told them to build! So Tirabazus took Antalcidas on a royal road trip all the way to the court of Artaxerxes II. That way the Spartan ambassador could negotiate directly with the King of Kings. Antalcedos explained the situation to Artaxerxes. The war was dragging on, and Sparta would fight tooth and nail for as long as possible to avoid the same fate they inflicted on Athens 16 years earlier. However, Sparta could not hold out forever, and even without Persian aid, the alliance would eventually provide the Athenians with enough ships to break through. That would leave Athens as the sole Greek naval power once again, and their activities on Cyprus were proof positive that they would return to the Peloponnesian War status quo. To avoid this, Sparta was willing to concede any claims they had to the Greek cities of Anatolia. But everyone, the great king, the Lydian satrap, and the Spartan negotiator, Agreed that a simple armistice in Greece would break down and hostilities would resume within a few years. Something more dramatic was necessary. To that end, Artaxerxes changed tactics. He authorized Tirabazis and Ariobarzanes to support Sparta at sea and force the Greek allies to the negotiating table as soon as possible. Tiribazus would oversee negotiations on the king's behalf and deliver Persia's conditions. So they returned to Sardis in spring of 387 and found the perfect opportunity already waiting for them. The Athenians decided to make another attempt on Abydos, and Talcidas himself rushed north to inform Ariobarzanes of the plan apparently already familiar with the young satrap of Phrygia from their shared negotiations during the Ionian War, and then he went to Abydos to coordinate with the other Spartan commanders. When the news about Persian support for ending the war on favorable terms reached Sparta, they immediately dispatched everything they had left to the Hellespont. And seeing that mobilization... Athens and her allies did the same. Minor skirmishes ensued as the two forces gathered, but there was no great battle. To the shock of the allies, they were met by Antalcidas commanding not just the Spartan fleet, but ships sent by the local satraps. Simultaneously, the Spartans launched raids into Athenian and Corinthian territory in Greece, taking advantage of the Allied fleet's absence to ferry men across the Gulf of Corinth. Faced with a sudden shift in realpolitik, the anti-Spartan coalition sued for peace. As the historian Roel Konij Nendijic put things in a witty tweet, The Persians funded a Spartan fleet to destroy an Athenian fleet, which the Persians had previously funded to destroy another Spartan fleet, which the Persians had previously funded to destroy another Athenian fleet. Decades of playing the Greeks against one another were finally about to pay off in a big way. Soon after the confrontation on the Hellespont, Tiribazus sailed to Corinth in person, to preside over a grand peace conference. Representatives from almost every participant in the war came together. Primarily, this meant the Spartans and the Peloponnesian League cities, Athens, Thebes, and the Boeotians, Corinth, Argos, and Aegina, along with Tiribazus himself representing the Persian Empire. Less influential parties came from across the Greek world, from Syracuse to Thessaly to Byzantium and the cities of Ionia, Aeolus, the Cyclades, the Dodecanes, and Caria. Representatives even came on behalf of Evagoras, Hacor, and King Suthes in Thrace. Tiribazus opened proceedings with a simple outline of the absolute, non-negotiable points demanded by King Artaxerxes II. Xenophon, quite possibly using a direct quote recorded at the peace conference and given in the very Persian style of a royal decree, wrote it like this. King Artaxerxes says it is right that the Greek cities in Asia should be his, as well as Clatsomenei and Cyprus among the islands, and that all other Greek cities, large and small, should remain autonomous except Lemnos, Imbros, and Scyros, as these should belong to the Athenians as an ages past. By both land and sea, with warships and with money or supplies, I, alongside those who support this agreement, will make war on any combatant which does not accept my peace." Further negotiations about precise boundaries, returning or compensating looted properties, and releasing captives certainly took place. But Artaxerxes' demands were clear-cut and covered the vast majority of political concerns in Greece. The conference adjourned and the delegates returned home to have the terms approved by their governments. A few weeks later, everyone came back. And that's where the delays came in. Most of the Greek cities were happy to oblige. The whole point of the last two great Greek wars was to achieve independence from rampaging hegemons. King Agesilus, acting as the representative of Sparta, vehemently confirmed the terms of this treaty, agreeing to restructure the Peloponnesian League and give other member cities independent decision-making power. The big problem now was Thebes, which reserved the right to swear their oath and sign the treaty on behalf of the entire Boeotian League. Agesilus raged at their envoys, who told him that it was just the orders they were given. The Spartan king demanded that they go home and explain the consequences of not allowing all Boeotian cities to swear their oaths independently, would be war with Sparta and Persia without the aid of their existing allies. To reinforce his point, Agesilaus marched an army to Boeotia, which got the Thebans on board pretty quickly. After that display, all Agesilus had to do was yell at the delegation from Argos. After the Spartan attacks in 391, the Argives had taken over Corinth as part of the Argive state. The negotiations forced them to relinquish the Isthmus. One issue that seems like it must have been brought up, but not addressed by Xenophon, is the question of Messenia and Laconia, where the Spartans had been enslaving the populace for centuries as helots. Perhaps like the cities in Attica seized by the Spartans in 404 and returned under this treaty, the Spartan claim was just too old to dispute in any meaningful way. Many of the representatives voiced dissent over leaving the Greeks of Anatolia in Persian hands, but nobody was about to put their city on the line in a war against Persia all alone. Regardless of any disputes, the Greek powers agreed to the great king's terms, bringing the Corinthian War to an end, and with it, the Spartan Hegemony, by summer of 387. In the common Greek tradition of naming major peace treaties after the diplomat who initiated negotiations, it's often called the Peace of Antalcidas. But it was also known by another name more fitting to the history of Persia, the King's Peace. The king's peace is often interpreted as a wholesale prohibition against large Greek alliances. This is not true. It simply required that the members of those alliances retain the right to withdraw peacefully and not be forced to provide tribute or manpower to another city-state against their will. Nobody doubted that there would be more internecine Greek wars. They just couldn't dictate domestic policy for other cities. Agesilus demonstrated the absolute limits of this just two years later by embarking on a punitive campaign against the city of Mantinea, which had turned against them during the Corinthian War. They couldn't require them to be in the Peloponnesian League or continue the alliance under its original terms but they could just invade and sack their neighbors to support friendly partisans. Ultimately, the prohibition against hegemonies and conquest would prove futile. But a variety of Greek alliances rose and fell on the basis of defending the king's peace. Most of them disintegrated or were forced apart by the very nature of one very large and powerful city, exerting more influence than its allies and thus being perceived as a hegemon. However, these largely remained internal Greek affairs, punctuated by Persian mediation. Never again would the Achaemenid Empire go to war with an ascendant Greek city-state. And never again would one of those cities dispute Persian rule in Anatolia. Choosing my words carefully, This is also where we depart from Xenophon's Hellenica, more or less. I'll use it to check in on the Greeks as needed, but the title literally means about Greece. The Persians feature prominently in much of the period he covers, but with the king's peace, that would no longer be the case. For the entire run of the show up to present, we have been able to rely on single masterworks of Greek history in the form of Herodotus, then Thucydides, and then Xenophon. Of course, they are always supplemented by other authors, some of which we've moved past and others who will be with us for years to come. However, aside from a certain Macedonian king, we don't really have any more sources like that for a while. Instead, we rely on a combination of bits and pieces, with many of the big stories coming from one major historian or another, When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Begin with a story known primarily from Diodorus Siculus. No sooner was the king's peace in place than the eponymous king gave orders for resources in the west to be redirected against Cyprus in 386. Hecatomnus of Caria had been assaulting the island for six years and made very little progress. But now he and Atophrodates were permitted to go home. In their place, satrap Orontes of Armenia would invade by land, while Tirabazus would take the navy. This time, with all the resources of the Western Empire ready at hand. Diodorus makes an interesting reference while enumerating where Evagoras' army came from. Obviously, he had his own subjects on Cyprus and in Phoenicia, support from Egypt, and there were now plenty of mercenaries available after the war in Greece. Diodorus also says that he gathered allies from the quote-unquote king of the Arabs and others who were at odds with Persia, either openly or in secret. We can guess who some of these were. The Arab kingdom in most classical histories is the Kedarites. We know Hakor stirred up trouble in Pisidia over in Anatolia. Presumably, some of his mercenaries were officially sanctioned by Greek cities, unhappy with the current arrangement. It's also easy to imagine that some of the peoples of the Levant, Libya, Nubia, and Upper Arabia got involved as well with Egyptian products. They were all Persian subjects at the fringe of the empire or cut off entirely by Egyptian independence. Tirabazus stayed in a command center in Cilicia and sent one of his officers to assault Salome by sea along the eastern coast of the island. Surprisingly, we've probably met this man before. It was Gloss, the son of Cyrus the Younger's Egyptian Admiral Tamos. Gloss had marched with Cyrus to Babylonia and repented by turning against the Greek mercenaries. Orontes landed in the loyalist city of Kittion, the seat of a petty kingdom sharing a border with Salome on the southeastern side of the island. That put distance between him and Gloss' fleet, distance that could be exploited by pirates hired by Evagoras. These raiders laid in wait off the coast of Salome and ambushed any Persian or merchant vessel sailing near Orontes' army, cutting it off from supplies from the mainland. Terrabazis could not hope to blockade the entire island. The Persian western fleet was only 300 ships at its height, and that was when they had all of Anatolia, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Egypt. Artaxerxes II only had Anatolia and part of Phoenicia, and both had been at war for years. The best they could do was about 150. Evagoras had access to almost half of the empire's shipyards and assembled a force of 200. Merchants couldn't reach Salome directly with Gloss at sea, but they could just sail around to one of the other cities Evagoras had conquered. Egyptian supply ships came in and out, delivering grain and money. Diodorus is never the most reliable source of numbers, but he claims Evagoras had an army of over 8,000 men, and Orontes had even more. Even if we assume those numbers include all of the support staff and camp followers, Cyprus was seeing an influx of more than 10,000 extra mouths to feed, so pro-Persian food supplies started running thin. Mercenaries hired by Orontes revolted, killing their officers in protest of the poor conditions. With a large chunk of his own forces turned against him, Orontes struggled to retake his own camp, let alone face Evagoras. This in turn sparked some of the Ionian sailors in the Persian fleet to dissent openly, presumably those who were sympathetic to Sparta. Gloss was not about to have another Ionian revolt under his watch, and he sent ships back to Ionia to track down whoever these dissenters were corresponding with, compiling a prescription list of potential traitors and having them either executed or dismissed. Once that was in order, Gloss left Salome, went to Cilicia, and picked up a large quantity of grain to resupply his embattled comrades on the island. When they did not go back to Salome, Evagoras waited for the Persian fleet to sail around the southeastern corner of the island, and then sent his fleet after them. Ancient warships, whether the Trireme, Bireme, Pentaconter, or even the larger super-ships of the Hellenistic period and medieval galleys, were all ramming weapons, slow to turn and vulnerable in the rear. The Cypriots came up on the unprepared Persian fleet from behind. But Gloss had the advantage of veteran sailors used to fighting in the Persian command structure. Evagoras' ships were mostly new, with fresh crews, and assembled from many disjointed places. So while the Cypriots did significant damage in the immediate attack, the Persians were able to get in formation and counter, destroying many enemy ships and forcing the Cypriots to retreat. Gloss went ashore, and he and Orontes made Khition their new base of operations. It was not a total success. While the navies battled at sea, Evagoras himself faced off with Orontes on land and scored a minor victory just east of Kideon. It was enough to reassure the Cypriot secession movement, but not enough to feel comfortable. Evagoras left his son in command of his armies and traveled to Egypt in person for a council with Pharaoh Hakor that winter. He appreciated Egyptian supplies and ships, but he still had to find crews for those ships himself, and he wanted Hakor to enter the war directly. The pharaoh wouldn't budge and just sent him back with more money for mercenaries. Over the winter, Tirabazes also traveled to his own court and updated Artaxerxes on the war. If it is seeming like Tirabazus was on a short leash compared to other satraps with all of this personal travel, that's probably not the case. One, he was Artaxerxes' personal friend. And two, Artaxerxes II was a lot more invested in Western affairs than any of his recent predecessors. And with good reason. Artaxerxes wanted Egypt back. He was the first king since Cyrus the Great himself not to rule over the kingdom of the two lands, and Egypt was rich. His entire reign up to this point had been a series of distractions from that goal. First Cyrus the Younger, Agesilus, Evagoras. All of them took resources and manpower away from that project and Persia would need the full force of the empire to retake Egypt now that it was dug in as an independent kingdom. Cyprus was just the last and most important of these stepstones. That island controlled the sea between all of Persia's naval bases and the Egyptian coast. So Artaxerxes authorized more funds for the Cypriot War soothing Orontes' mercenaries and ensuring that grain would keep flowing to his forces. The Persian loyalist kings on Cyprus formed a semicircle, cutting through the middle of the island, with six rebels in the east, including Salome, and three to the west. With the arrival of reinforcements, they were able to pressure some of the eastern kings to surrender and the victory at sea was enough to turn all of the western kings against Evagoras. With their position more secure, Orontes led the army to besiege Salome while Gloss instituted a blockade. More effective now that there wasn't an easy way for Egyptian supplies to circumvent it. Evagoras arrived home to find himself cut off from his allies and under siege he sent word to Tirabazus that he was ready to negotiate. Tirabazus was happy to meet with him, and offered essentially the same conditions given to the Greeks two years earlier. Evagoras had to withdraw from the other Cypriot and Phoenician kingdoms and return to his rightful place as a tribute-paying vassal of the King of Kings, obeying all military and civil orders sent by Artaxerxes and the Satraps. Evagoras agreed to all but one of those terms. He wanted to be treated as a foreign king, free to negotiate if he did not like the orders sent from Persia. Obviously, Tirabazus refused. At this point, Diodorus says that Orontes began sending letters back to the royal court, claiming that Tirabazus had it in his power to take Salome by force but was refusing to do so in favor of negotiation. To sweeten the poison, he added a fictitious claim that Tirabazis was conspiring with Sparta, to back a rebellion in Ionia. Diodorus frames this as a duplicitous and greedy Easterner trying to undermine his personal rivals. That may have been true. Tirabazis had been Orontes' subordinate in Armenia not that long ago, but now he had been promoted to the more prestigious satrapy in Lydia. However, let's look at the other possibilities. Though he was descended from a distant branch of the Hidarnid family, Orontes had long family ties in Armenia, going back to at least the time of Darius the Great. It was by no means unprestigious, It was large, strategically important, and one of the only places with significant Iranian colonization. However, Orontes was a general. Armenia was a border satrapy that faced frequent minor rebellions and skirmishes in the Caucasus. He commanded a large portion of the army in the Battle of Kanaxa as well and must have been chosen as the Ranking General on Cyprus for a reason. He would hardly be the first military man in history to undermine diplomacy in favor of impressive battlefield victories. Far removed from the reality on the ground, Artaxerxes had Orontes arrest Tirabazes and send him back to Persia for further questioning. That left the fleet and the satrapy of Lydia in the hands of Gloss for the time being. At some point after Tiribazus arrived in Lydia for the first time, Gloss had married his daughter and became a high-ranking official in the satrapy. Orontes was now the overall commander in the west. He had very little success at Salome. Evagoras was dug in and had a stockpile of supplies inside the city. Orontes was further hampered by dissent and insubordination among his officers, who had liked Tirabazis much more than the satrap of Armenia, in part because Tirabazis tended to be very relaxed as a commander, and in part because many of them were just Tirabazis' men. So Orontes opened negotiations himself and accepted Evagoras' terms. Evagoras would leave the Cypriot kingdoms and Tyre independent and pay tribute, but Salome could negotiate with Persia as a vassal kingdom. After withdrawing from Cyprus, Gloss returned to his estates in Lydia, taking most of his marines and the navy's treasury with him, plotting a revolt. He was not aware of any plans for a revolt, but he would back tirabazus if it happened, and now he was afraid of retaliation due to his association with the defamed satrap. He reached out to both the pharaoh and the Spartans for support and soldiers. Hakor was always willing to support a Persian rebel, and he offered to break the king's peace and give Sparta dominion over Ionia. The Spartans were already testing the bounds of that peace. When they assaulted Mantinea for backing the allies during the Corinthian War, Agesilus invaded and divided the city up into five separate towns, with their own pro-Spartan governments along the lines of the five villages that once merged together to form the city. Strictly speaking, this was a flagrant violation of the peace, by altering another city-state's government. But everyone kind of opted to let it go. Nobody wanted another war, and it could be argued that since Mantinea violated a pre-war agreement, that pre-war conditions applied. Nothing happened in Lydia for over a year, it took the Spartans time to debate whether or not they should intervene in Anatolia again, which would openly destroy the king's peace. By the time they agreed to do it, Gloss was dead at the hands of a loyalist assassin. One of his Egyptian subordinates took over the army, which Gloss had collected. This guy tried to initiate the rebellion by intervening in a dispute between two Ionian cities, and was killed in the battle. Without anybody to support in Anatolia, Sparta redirected the forces they already gathered and went north. Up in the Balkans, King Amintus III of Macedon was recently defeated and lost most of his territory to the Illyrians, a cluster of small kingdoms around modern Albania. With this defeat, the Greek city of Olynthus, in the western Chalcidiches, took advantage of the situation, conquering Macedonian territory from the east, and then moving to conquer their own Greek neighbors. Last time we saw Olynthus, they were just kind of a random city that refused to yield to Xerxes and got besieged by Artabazus way back in episode 52, The Adventure Continues. Now, Olynthus became the first city to flagrantly violate the king's peace. Rather than requiring Persian intervention, the Spartans sent an army under Agesilus to join Amentis of Macedon in reconquering his country. They defeated Olynthus. Ironically, given their recent plans with Gloss, they did this all under the pretext of enforcing the treaty. So for now the king's peace remained in place, even if it was not all that peaceful. And while all of this was going on in Greece and Anatolia, Tiribazus languished in the golden prison of the great king's palace at Susa, detained under guard, but left to wait in the sweltering heat of several summers while Artaxerxes was away dealing with a new Caducian revolt. Up in the northeastern Caucasus. Two sources reference Caducian revolts at entirely different times. Diodorus places it in 383 to frame the imprisonment of Tirabazus. Plutarch references one a decade later, with Tirabazus as a participant alongside Artaxerxes. Either these are the same event and Plutarch has the date wrong or Plutarch has some histories intended to describe the First Revolt, but without any dates, so he places them later. It's hard to imagine Plutarch making such a massive chronological error, given his propensity for much more contemporary sources. But he does not cite Diodorus at all, and appears ignorant of any earlier events in the same region. If his source described these stories without a particular date, then their inclusion might make more sense. His timeline of Artaxerxes' later marriage arrangements is something to be discussed in a later episode, but it is the framing device here. Plutarch also attributes some impressive physical feats to a king who would have been more than 70. The king's personal involvement also makes more sense if you assume that he was there in 383, when Orontes was away from his satrapy in Armenia, including his caducian subjects. To try and make narrative sense out of that, I'll tell the story of Artaxerxes' exploits here and Tirabazes' adventure in a later episode. The caducian campaign was a hard one. The only details firmly associated with the Revolt of 383 come from the Roman historian Cornelius Nepos, who says that the regional governor of eastern Cilicia was killed in the battle. His son Datamis survived as a prominent commander and was allowed to ascend to his father's position as a reward. Back with Plutarch, Artaxerxes had little tolerance for repeat rebels, and marched north with a large army. But the mountainous terrain and poor soil of the Caucasus made it almost impossible to resupply the whole force. Much like Xenophon and the mercenaries, they were reduced to slaughtering their own pack animals. Ultimately, though, this actually won Artaxerxes a great domestic victory. He had to eschew royal banquets and luxury goods that would normally travel with him on campaign. He had to sleep in a small tent exposed to the elements due to the uneven ground. In short, he had to live and suffer like all of his subjects. So he seized on the perfect propaganda moment to march with the vanguard, on foot during the journey out of the mountains. They didn't get out of the most treacherous terrain until late autumn, with bitter cold already setting in on the Caucasus. That's when Plutarch says they reached a royal stopping place with an expansive paradise garden. Based on the location of Caducea, there is a very good chance that this is the incredibly well preserved Achaemenid palace, known today as Gurban Tepe, in western Azerbaijan, described in more detail in Patreon bonus episode 22, Achaemenid Europa. Artaxerxes gave his men permission to cut down the trees in the paradise, but they were hesitant given the religious sanctity of gardens and the obvious age of these trees. They could not be easily replaced. According to Plutarch, Artaxerxes himself picked up an axe and started cutting down the largest of the trees, further endearing the army to their king. They probably spent the winter there, and in the spring, Artaxerxes returned to Parsa and eventually Susa. According to Diodorus, this is when he would have heard Tirabasus' case and released him. Tirabasus was elevated to a position at court, while Atophrodates, former commander of the army against Evagoras, became the new satrap of Lydia. To top it off and make amends, Artaxerxes promised to arrange a marriage between Tirabasus and his third daughter, Amestris. Meanwhile, the king sent a letter lambasting Orontes for lying to him and dismissing him from Armenia. Orontes was not recalled or executed, but sent to Musia, on the northwestern side of Anatolia, where he could be a regional governor under Ariobarzanes. Who exactly succeeded Orontes as satrap of Armenia is an open question. It could be just a new appointment sent by Artaxerxes, or it could be Orontes' own son. There is a strange gap in the sources here, where one of Orontes' descendants, a second Orontes, held the office later, but the historian Justin says that an unrelated noble named Artashada, held the office before him, but after the death of the I's successor. Given the Persian convention of naming firstborn grandsons after their grandfather, it is possible that Orontes' son was elevated in his place so as not to show more ill will toward the Hidarnid family. And that's where I'll call it a day for now. Next time, we're in for a big topic. There may be peace in the Northwest, but to the South, Egypt has been in revolt for altogether too long. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.